even if you if you look at like 1965 to 1967, even two years, the fashions were so different. 1967, 1969, two years again. Um, it doesn't move like that now, you know? And it, and it, and it, I don't think it ever will again. It hasn't before, it hasn't since. So there was something going on then, obviously, you know. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon where I'm giving you all seven days of a free trial. So patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And if you join the ITBR professor level, which you'll see gets you access to all of our rewatch podcast series like Queerest Folk and Smash, and all of our Teaches series, including when we rewatched Scream with you all, when we discussed The Exorcist, we're about to do a Britney Spears memoir episode. So, oh, and The Fall of the House of Usher is coming up. You also get access to both book clubs. And while you're at it, while you're joining our Patreon, where you're getting your seven days for free, I would really love if you Make sure you like and follow us on Apple or Spotify, and please leave a review. It really does help us in terms of advertisers and sponsors. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network, and it is just wonderful to be part of this arts and culture organization and have you all out there reach out to me. So again, remember, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook and we're on X as well. Enjoy this episode, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and when I'm not here on the podcast, I am consulting with small businesses, undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you wanna create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work, um, how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your Instagram. All of that I have done. So. 
just reach out to me. Also, I'm really excited to announce that the December book club choice is Britney Spears's The Woman in Me memoir. So to join the book club, head to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and go to events and you're going to see a form there just so I know how many of you are joining the book club. And that way I can reach out to each of your email addresses and poll all of you to see what date at the end of December works. It's going to be the week after Christmas. So don't worry. It's not going to be the week of Christmas. That would be hectic. And then I'll let you all know how to join the book club, which happens on Patreon. You just join under the ITBR book club section. So can't wait to see who wants to discuss Britney Spears. We have a lot to dissect there. And in the also, if you want to join the Wicked Broadway Musical group event, which is happening in March, head to that event section on the website and fill out that Google form by December 1st. Ah, so much happening here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And I love this community. I love being the host and director of this arts and culture organization. Thank you all for supporting me. It means so much. And please spread the word for my consultation services for the podcast, the book club, the Broadway musical, group event, all the things. And without further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am joined here with an author, a personality, just a person who really lights up the Ivory Tower Boiler Room every time she's here. She's a regular. Um, it's her third time in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, so I wouldn't be surprised if she starts to transform into Rapunzel soon, like in the tower. Uh, as long as she doesn't get locked up in the tower like Rapunzel, that's not a. That's actually not a healthy fairy tale. <laughs> None of the fairy tales are really that healthy. None of them are healthy. None of them. <laughs> Although, although, although I love them. <laughs> yeah, so I'm joined with the wonderful Elizabeth Winder, who was here to talk about before her book, Marilyn in Manhattan. She recapped the Blonde movie from Netflix with me. And she also has written Sylvia Plath. Um, well, actually, it's called Pain Party's Work. Sylvia Plath in New York, summer 1953. I know that she's like been in touch with Gail Crother, who's also been on, who wrote a Sylvia Plath book. So Sylvia Plath, Marilyn Monroe, they are near and dear to my heart and to everyone who listens, probably your hearts as well. Her work has appeared in the Chicago Review, Antioch Review, American Letters, and other publications. She's a graduate of the College of William Mary, earned an MFA in creative writing from George Mason University, lives in very idyllic Washington, D.C. Elizabeth, welcome back to talk about now we can add parachute women into the repertoire. It's wonderful to have you back. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. So... Right away with Parachute Women, right? We're leaving the 1940s, the 50s. We're like in now the 60s, 70s, even 80s culture. And what I wanted to ask, especially as I've been reading your book, is we have four women, Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, and Anita Pallenberg. And I'm just curious, before you even started to do this research, because I know you're a deep researcher with your nonfiction, that did you know these women? Did you know their names? 
Well, Marianne Faithful, let's see. Um, I have been aware of Marianne Faithful since I was a teenager because I knew about her music. I knew about her earlier music starting from the mid 60s when she recorded as, as Tears Go By. And then I knew about her later career that started in, in the 80s with Broken English. So I, I, she was, and I also knew about her style. She was very beautiful. She just seemed super cool. So I knew who she was. And then, and, and I knew who Bianca Jagger was because I think that, you know, a lot of people know who she is. Um, she was uh, so photographed in the 60s in the, in, the, in the more in the 70s and in the 80s and then I knew about her humanitarian work and I first learned about Anita Pallenberg in the summer of 2013 and I and that's when I really got the idea for this book it was back in back 10 years ago in the summer of 2013 and I was in traveling in the south of France with an ex-boyfriend of mine. And I was reading Keith Richards' autobiography, Life, which is really a very good book and, he, and a long book too. And he writes at length repeatedly about Anita Pallenberg. He writes quite favorably about her. Um, and he's very honest and forthcoming about her, her um, really flamboyant intelligence and personality and style. And I just thought, oh my God, she is so cool. And I got the idea right then and there, reading that book. And, and we were, and I were actually in the Camargue region of the South of France, where um, playing the Rolling Stones in the car, where in, the, in that region, there are all these French cowboys like running by on their horses. So it's, it had a rock star type of romanticism to it. Um, I just thought, I want to write a book about Marianne Faithful and Anita Pallenberg, because it was very obvious from Keith Richards' autobiography how great of an influence Anita had on the band. And I thought, nobody else has written about this, so I want to write about it. And the idea was kind of shot down by my agent at the time, who's no longer my agent. And years went by. I wrote Marilyn in Manhattan. And um, then around 2017, 2018, I thought, you know what? Okay, it's time to revisit this idea. I still think this is a good idea. And then I thought, um, I want to, I, start, I started to think maybe Bianca Jagger should be involved in this. She's such an influential personality as well. And in my research, I, just kind of, you know, preliminary research, I very quickly learned about Marsha Hunt. And um, I started listening to Marsha Hunt's music. And Marsha Hunt is, um, she's a writer, and she's written several books. So I started reading her books. And I thought, Oh, my gosh, I really want to write about her, too. So that's how the book came, came together. It sort of, it really had been um, percolating in my mind for, for quite a while. Well, and before I sat down with you, I was at the gym doing squats. And of course, I had rock and roll playlists. And I decided to do women rock and roll, like looked it up on Spotify. That's what I love about Spotify. You could like yeah. look up any phrases and they'll come up as a compilation. And it was just so beautiful that the first song was uh, Tina Turner's The Best, which is one of my favorite songs. Oh, and I 
Yeah. And I think like, okay, female rock stars, Tina Turner, that makes sense to me. Joan Jett with literally rock and roll in the title of her song, um, that there are such iconic female rock stars. But I feel that even the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame does had for a while not always turned their attention to the female rock stars. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, Tina Turner, a major, major influence on Mick Jagger. And I actually talk about that in the, my, my book a little bit. He was absolutely mesmerized by her presence on stage and the way that she danced. Well, because she's around the same in late six, like sixties into seventies, right? Yes. She starts yes. her career, and even in like, the mid sixties, mid sixties, even sixty five, sixty six, she was um, still already very much a presence. That's when she was with Ike, I think. Uh, yes, in the beginning, yes, yes. and then yeah. you know she found her voice, and that's something for me. I was really listening closely to the lyrics of these songs, like "I Love Rock and Roll." And, you know, put another juke, dime in the jukebox, baby. Not necessarily that, but even the best with Tina Turner. Something I was finding different when then I listened to some of the Rolling Stones music, which I love, you know, Paint It Black and um, their iconic songs. But there was a different theme. And it's coming so clear in your book, Elizabeth, is I find with female rock stars, it's really about individuality and finding their agency and like taking control of their narrative, where with the men, it's more like the glamour of their lifestyle. Absolutely. That's a really, really good point. And I hadn't really thought about it that way before, but you're right. Now that I'm, now that I'm sort of thinking about it, you don't really get those reveling in the glamour of the lifestyle songs from women rockers. Not, not as much, not, I, nothing comes to mind right now. It, it really is about finding finding their voice yeah and even you know heart i find another oh. like rock band i just am obsessed with i love um, heart <laughs> yes yes um that i think though now right we're in 2023 and i was listening to the my serious channel and Nicki minaj comes on and she has this new song i just really love um it's left my mind now but She's always now blending hip hop and rap and pop in a way, like going back and forth with genres. But that's how I feel even Beyonce has gotten into, you know, doing some rock. Dolly Parton now has rock oh, yeah. music with Miley Cyrus. And yes. they're they're now blending the genres. So I feel when you're looking at your period, when you're looking into the 60s, 70s, women were, you know, like a Joan Jett. She is finding her voice and there really isn't mixing of genres back then. No, no, because you know, when you think of when back then, and especially in the sixties, rock was was still so new, rel relatively speaking. So it was being that it was new, people weren't really starting to experiment with it that much. Um, even into the seventies, it was still kind of new and certainly rock stars were new. Yeah. And I was even thinking with your book, like you're drawing so much on these unknown middle class boys who are really trying to find their voice and like what becomes the Rolling Stones, like even the name of their I mean, that origin story, the name of their group, like what is it about 
rock and roll and this metaphor of the Rolling Stones, like that, you know, rock stones, like why, right. why this I, material? I've always I, thought about that. I know what you mean. And and for, for me, and I think for many other people, the Rolling Stones are kind of like the, the definition of rock, rock and roll. Like certainly you could, you could take issue with that. But when I, when I think of rock and roll, like think of the Rolling Stones, I think of a stone rolling down a hill. I think of all of it gets, gets kind of swirled in my mind. And, you know, and I think you can tell from, I mean, to be like, honestly, I wouldn't, obviously, I would, would not have written a book about, and it is about the women, but it also very much is about the Rolling Stones. If I did not like the band, if I did not like 60s and 70s rock culture, if I did not like that wild over the top glamour of rock and roll, even though I'm criticizing certain aspects of it, I think that you can tell that I am bewitched by it. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am here with the co-owner of one of my favorite stores here in Port Jefferson Village, New York. It is called The Soapbox. So Janine said, Andrew, I have these four products you need to get your hands on. It's called Four for Fall. So she's going to go over these four products. I know first you have a soap for me. What is the soap? I, do. I have a soap for you. It is called Apple Cider Shea Butter Soap. It's by a company called Greenwich Bay. And this is a great soap because you can use it for your hands or your body. And it has a delicious apple cider scent. And I think you're actually already familiar with it. Yes, it is Try in it. my shower. I still have it. It lasts a very long time. Yeah, great lather. The lather is wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's just so luxurious. And I love the scent into November. Yes. You know, this apple cider 
just, it evokes so many cozy feelings. After the soap, we have something that you can add on to in the shower. So what is this? This is a wonderful, wonderful um, exfoliating shower scrub. It is by a company called Primal Almonds, and it's a sugar whip shower scrub. And the scent is pumpkin spice. It's a moisturizing sugar scrub. So it's tiny little sugar granules. And it's something that you would use after you shower twice a week because you don't want to strip your skin of your natural um, oils and your your moisture. But it's wonderful. It just really exfoliates all that dead skin and leaves your skin very smooth and soft from all the um, the sugar. So after I use the exfoliant right now, we need to moisturize. So yeah. I know you have a really nice fall body lotion for us. Absolutely. Um, this is just such a delicious scent. This is one of my favorites for fall. It is The scent is Orchard Breeze. And it's by a company called Michelle Design Works. Um, this is another product that you can use hand or body, hand and body. Um, it's great. You can place it um, on your vanity, just a couple of pumps for your hands or use it on your entire body. But it's shea butter based. So it's extremely moisturizing. Um, it's it's just wonderful. And the scent is just lovely. We need something more deep for our face. Everyone yeah. wants face masks. And I know that you absolutely love this company and this product. Yes. This is one of my favorite masks by one of my favorite companies that we carry and we support. The company is called Farmhouse Fresh, and they're right out of Texas. The mask is called Splendid Dirt, and it's a nutrient-rich mud mask. Um, It consists of pumpkin puree, and the benefits of this mask, uh, it's a pore minimizer, a radiance booster, and a skin degunker. So it's an all-around great mask. If you really want a boost of radiance, it brightens your skin, and it really cleanses your pores. If they live on Long Island or near Long Island, you know, what is your address uh, for them to come into the store? We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson, New York, right in the village. Um, And if you can't make it, you have to come in because we just have so much fun stuff in here. So many wonderful products. Um, But if you can't make it in, please give us a call. We're more than happy to um, ship any of these wonderful, all any of these wonderful products to you. Uh, Call us at 631-509-1424. You can always um, reach us on Instagram at the Soapbox NY, or you could always um, check us out on our website, Soapbox NY. Um, And yeah, there's so many ways to access your products to reach us. And Janine is more than happy. And Mariana. The other co-owner. My mom, actually. Yes. Yes, my mother. Are so willing to take your orders via phone, via Instagram. And I can't wait for everyone else to enjoy these luxurious products. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, 
visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Well, bewitchment is usually a theme in your work, which (laughs) I love because I do feel you have a very, and I've never asked you this, but I can tell the more I'm reading your work, Elizabeth, you have such an intuitive way of understanding your characters, right? Realistic characters, but they are still characters. Yeah. And like, we all are characters, in my opinion, like life is a narrative. Yeah. How I perceive there was some show I was watching and they said like reality is perception. Oh, it was about the definition of reality TV. And I thought it was so wise. Reality is perception, but perception is reality. Like what you see right now is reality, but what I'm observing is my reality. So sometimes the two don't meet like, right. Oh yes. We don't read the signs the same in our lives. Right. Right. And I thought it was just, so made sense like there's something in your process that really is just magical like you really are trying to show the full dynamic of each of these four women like what is what fuels that is it you want to really just peel the layer back of who is Marsha Hunt or who is Bianca Jagger oh definitely I I feel I because well there's a few different reasons so for one I and I and I, and I kind of just said this like I would not write a write about someone or something but in this case we're talking about people anyone who I was not fascinated by because I have to be interested enough to completely want to get to know that person you know I think that on some level we write what we want to read and I don't know if you've ever been reading a book whether it's fiction or nonfiction, where you're thinking this isn't interesting because I don't know enough details. Do you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yes, like yes. this, cause I feel like that happens to me quite a bit. So I, I want to be able to be inside someone's head in a way. Um, if I can't get there, I'm not going to write it. Well, and that's what makes for me the most unfiltered, or psychologically, the depth of the psyche of the writing is that feeling you just described. When you're reading a book and you can tell that the author has censored themselves, or maybe there were right editorial decisions outside right. the author's control, of right. course, but you can tell that they really are trying to appease the reader and appease an audience's perspective instead of telling the story they really wanted out there. and Absolutely. And what's the point of writing, a, in my opinion, what's the point of writing a book like that? I mean, sadly, so few people read anyway, you might as well make it. <laughs> you know? Isn't that the damn truth, Elizabeth? <laughs> I wish it weren't the case, but you might as well. And, and, and more than that, like, that's, that's not, that's not the way to do it. That, that's just not the way to do it. Um, we, you know, we read, we read for entertainment. We read to enter into it, uh, to, to get to understand 
other people. And that way we understand ourselves better. You know, by, by, by understanding history, we understand ourselves. By understanding the mind of another, we understand ourselves. And I think, I think that that's part of it too. You know, I, I wanted to feel like I could, I could enter into the minds of these, not even just the women, but some of the men that I was writing about. Well, and what differs so much from our conversations about Marilyn Monroe or Sylvia Plath is they are no longer with us. Like a lot of these character characters, I keep saying characters, but a lot of these figures are with us. Almost all know? of them are. Yes. Anita yes. is not. Okay. So outside of Anita, you're dealing with the lived reality and experiences of people who could talk back if they wanted. Like it was that yeah. something ever that entered into your process? Like, did it impact of how you were writing the narrative thinking, well, they could pick this book up? It was certainly present in my mind all the time. I don't know if it, if it really impacted my, my process in terms of the final product, you know, mm -hmm. but, but it was, but, but it was in the back of my mind all the time, because how could it not be, you know, I think, um, I, I was just thinking today, like, oh, I, I, uh, I want my next book to take place like in the 1600s or something <laughs> like, <laughs> it's certainly more nerve wracking to write about the slightly more recent times. I mean, you know, 60s, 70s, not very recent, but slightly more recent. I think also, you know, um, well, definitely, this was certainly the more, most stressful book to write by far for so many different reasons, and some that didn't have anything to do with the subject matter, most which had nothing to do with the subject matter, which had, had to do with what was going on in the world, what was going on in my life, many, many other things. But it was a, it was a really stressful book to write, and I, um, but I, that's one of the reasons why I'm proud of how it came out, you know, because I, I hope that that stress, I don't think that stress is visible in the book. Yeah, well, and it seems that the years you were writing this book are such transitory moments, especially in American, British, but just global culture, that we're seeing huge transformation of just women, but you know, even just outside of women, those who are on the edge or the margins of society really gaining their voice in the music industry, in the arts industry, that, you know, this all was um, you mean in a the tornado. Last years, in the last several years. Yeah, the last several years. Yes. And it's a tornado of a process of, I think, now when you reflect on this in your book, you can really see that it's not like these are new at all. Um, cultural shifts happening like these these arguments have been happening for a while about women gaining more agency over their art you know even like yes. taylor swift like yeah. taylor swift being involved legally with like not owning her music or kesha um i mean there's so britney, many women britney artists. spears yes yeah so how did it that process of knowing what's happening now did that at all surprise you when you saw that these women were dealing with so many struggles themselves just trying to put their work out there or their art out there yes yes and it continues to surprise me especially after having written this book and while I was writing the book because when I when I read and see these things that are currently happening I think how is this still 
how is this still a, an issue? How is this, how is this still going on? You know, like, I, of course, things are very different, thank God, than they were in the late 60s, early mid 70s. But it, you know, after when you when you've been writing about the things I've been writing about, and deep, so deep in that for for several years, it's, you know, you, you think, my God, then I'm hearing that um, it seems like the same thing in the in the news. And you're it's the obvious reaction is how is this still happening? You know, how is this still a thing? Um, you see the ways that things are the same and the ways that they're different. And it's it's um, it's fascinating and also infuriating. Well, and you show this archetype of women being put into boxes in the 70s with the rock movement and like how the media would even paint women as they had to either fit the groupie narrative, like letting themselves and their bodies be sexualized for this hyper-masculine rock culture. Or then you had like the wives or the girlfriends who had to excuse the behavior and pretend right. it didn't exist. The whole stand um, by your man stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But like rarely was the media turning to the female entrepreneur or, you know, like a I, Tina Turner we talked about. Right. Yeah. Right. Because you know what? It's because the only it, they weren't interested in it because the media has re, has um, repeatedly and still in a way continues to use women to feed these sort of like salacious type narratives, or if it isn't a salacious narrative, it's the old, like, it's, it's, it's a narrative that, that suits them kind of, you know, and, and people back then, especially, they did not like, they certainly didn't like a character like Anita Pallenberg, who was absolute, none of these women could be, could have been, were ever defined by any of these, those roles. And that's why they were baffled. You know, the public was very baffled by them, especially by someone like Anita, who was just very much following what made her happy in the moment. And the idea of a woman living like that was so scary and, and dangerous to the, to the status quo. They just didn't know what to do with it. People yeah. around her didn't know what to do with it. And it's fascinating because at the same time, and you do dig into this, the women are also, like these four women, are part of a construction of patriarchal, we could call it, if you want to theorize it, but of seeing how their sexualized body is also opening the door for them and how they're going to take advantage of that by doing it as a marketing pitch, almost like what Paris Hilton has done, Kim yeah. Kardashian. I mean, we have very contemporary examples, but it was even like Donna Summer. I remember Donna Summer, right? 70s disco is also at the same parallel line as rock and roll that Donna Summer said, I was seen as the sex kitten of the discotheque. Like I didn't necessarily agree with it because of religion, but I saw this was my role. Like I'm yes. going to now fill the fantasy. So like, how did these women in your mind, Elizabeth, explore the fantasy of women, but actually their everyday lived experience? I think, um, well, to piggyback on what I just said before, yeah. I think that Anita Pallenberg might have been, I don't think, I, I don't think that she was I think that she truly just did, did what made her happy. 
<laughs> and I don't even think there was anything calculated about it. I mean, sure, she, I mean, all of these women were incredibly beautiful, just naturally. So she was, and, and that enabled her to find work as a model, which also, because she was also a very talented actress. And she worked as an actress, not even because she had, she wasn't like Marilyn Monroe, who had this ambition to be a great actress. She just thought it was fun. You know, and then she hung out with the Stones because she thought it was fun. So, <laughs> so you, so, so, and, and she was just a very creative person who liked being around, you know, like who liked experimenting with different things. So for Anita, she really just was following her happiness. Um, for for Marianne, I think that she, well, she got started in her folk sing, pop folk singing career when she was really quite young, just a teenager. Um, now it was very obvious and, it, and I think that it was obvious to her at the time that her, she had a lovely voice, but, but her beauty was a big reason why she was, and her, that she was um, able to, you know, that they, these people sort of like, you know, like a talent agents would kind of pick somebody up. And I think that that's one of the reasons why that happened. Um, and she absolutely hated that. So she rebelled very much against it. And I write about this a little bit, you know, her, she continued to record music a little bit into the beginning of her, her relationship with Mick. And we're just talking about as early as 1966, 1967 here. By 1968 and 69, she really resented that image of her as this beautiful, angelic, innocent little creature so much that she actively tried to destroy her beauty so that she wouldn't be, so that it, her beauty wouldn't be able to be leveraged in any way. So, so um, that is interesting and kind of, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's tragic or not, but, but she was so used to people using it that she wanted to, to break it kind of. Um, then you have Marsha Hunt, who again, um, well, she's Amer she's the one American um, in, well, they're all from different uh, countries here, but Marsha Hunt was American and um, is American. And she was, you know, working as a young model and singer in London. And, you know, I think that, that she uh, consciously did know that, you know, she could leverage her beauty in, in some way, but when she, uh, landed a role in hair she actually was breaking new ground um it was 60 67 maybe and um the whole like uh, black is beautiful movement was was going on in the uk and the united states and wearing her hair in, in its natural state was she didn't do that consciously to you know, make a statement. She just was walking to the audition and her hair was, which she had just done, it was, very, it was a really humid day, was just like, you know, what your, what your hair does in, in humidity. And she just kind of showed up and was like, well, here I am, what am I going to do? And um, the director thought, oh my gosh, this is great. So when the, when the musical came out, they were, um, the, the publicity agents really zeroed in on, on her because she um, was offering up a very new and unusual look. And then that sort of, uh, like sort of opened other doors. And then um, Bianca Jagger, I think um, was, I, I mean, honestly, she is out of all of these four women and and um, this is, you could have probably guessed this. She is the one who was definitely the most elusive to me. <laughs> um, 
I know that she absolutely loved clothes, probably still does, because when you look at pictures of her, she still looks incredible and is dressed impeccably. But um, I don't, you know, she was someone who at least during the time that I was writing about was not really interested um, that much in, you know, and a career in performing or the, or the arts or anything like that. Although she was interested in, in writing a book on nutrition and cooking. Um, she was interested in, in, in things like that actually. So yes, she is quite elusive to me. Um, does that kind of answer the question at no, all? It was a long-winded answer. No, no, of course. I feel that, you know, even ourselves never know how much we're actually living our lives under societal expectations, right? I think all of us are, whether we want to or not, are still conforming to certain ideals and oh, sometimes right. sub subverting that or making big decisions to to rebel against them. You know, yes. I, I think often in my life, like, <laughs> I'm sure not the only one has done this, but having done really things like acting out of character from, um, specifically to rebel against expectations, kind of, um, you know, so it can go both ways. Yes. And like knowing that society is, there's going to be critics and there's going to be those who see that you are abandoning what they see as security and the status quo. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. 
I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Imagine that you're riding the Turner Classic movie, Great Movie Ride, in Hollywood Studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Happy almost holiday season. Because the holidays are upon us, I'm sure so many of you out there are thinking, oh my, what am I going to get my friends, my family, my children, my romantic partner, my husband, my wife, any, you know, significant person in your life. Look no further than my good friend, Mandy Bangle, who makes handmade crocheted items. Her company is called Mandy Made It. You can follow her on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And you will see all of these crocheted items that she's going to be able to customize for you, including special characters, sports team figures, even holiday items like a snowflake or a Christmas tree. So I have Mandy's keychains. I have the poison apple from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I have a rainbow um, flag that she made me. So Mandy is able to really customize an order just depending on what your hobbies and passions are. And you know, what item you're really looking for. So because you're listening to me talk about Mandy, she said that anyone who goes to Mandy Made It on Instagram and orders from her, and they've heard the Ivory Tower Boiler Room ad, she will give you all a free Ivory Tower Boiler Room t-shirt with your order. So head right now to Mandy Made It. You know, if you were really looking for that special gift, now you don't have to Look any further because I have you covered with Mandy Mated. Okay, I hope you all enjoy your items from Mandy Mated. And please make sure that you take a photo of your crocheted items so that we can share it out on our social media. 
I know Mandy would love that. And I would love to see what you all are ordering from her. She even has an adorable pillow called Netflix and Chill. And she has these cute coasters that she crochets for your favorite coffee or tea mug. So enjoy all your Mandy Made It products. And I mean, I feel that way too, Elizabeth, of just having created this enter, we could call it a small business enterprise, but having this organization now that, you know, even myself having such steamy, risque conversations and really being so sex positive at the same time, there have been those who said, you know, Andrew, this is going to really, this might affect you going to a university again, or someone hiring you. Um, like even if you post photos of yourself and your body, you know, they could use it against you. And I said, I have to do what feels so authentically myself. And I feel empowered with my journey that, you know, if someone wants to judge my decisions and my conversations and who gets to be part of this community, that's their loss. But that's exactly. something I now have come to terms with, but it doesn't, I think that's like something you and I have in common, you know, like um, I think that we're, we're both very much like that. And I think we also sense like it would be so for me, at least, and I think probably for you, it would mm -hmm. be so um, way more extreme than uncomfortable, so unbearable to have to not be yourself that we don't we would not want to be in any environment where whether it's, you know, a um you know an employer or this or that where where we couldn't be our, our true selves right you know it, exactly it, that I mean that's almost like not an option um but a lot of people still operate that way and live their and live their lives that way even in 2023 I think it really breeds resentment and anger but <laughs> I'm not a psychologist that's not what my PhD is in it's in English <laughs> but I do really think you can tell the people who felt they had to conform and that's really not their true self. It's sad. It's, it's, very, it's very sad. It is. And I think though, with what you do with the account of these women is you already brought it up with Marsha Hunt, who they really are so unique. And I don't want to like use unique just as a trite way of saying, oh, they were just special you know, women at their time. I really do think though, what they're doing with the Rolling Stones, especially like with Mick Jagger, is really trying to find their artistic freedom or expression or even just live their lives 100% who they are. And it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy now even, but back then there was just such a different understanding of, okay, well, women can be artistic, but the box is like this, or they yeah. can be in the seventies, you know, a sexual powerhouse. Like that's okay. Like if they're at the disco or they're doing this type of work, it has to be though at the gaze you know, of a man. Prescribed, like, are you going to check, check this box, check this box, check that box. And you know, um, the seven, one thing to keep in mind is things were, were, like time was, the, the times were changing so rapidly. And my book does cover, um, 
you know, let's say 10 years time, 1965 to 75 would, or would be was sort of what my the time that my book covers between those 10 years, it was like, I mean, culture had shifted quite a lot. Things were changing very rapidly. I mean, in terms of sexism, it was still pretty bad in 1975, but that, you know, that the second wave feminist movement had had happened in between those two years, right? Um, other things had happened in between those two, the, the, or 10 years, sorry. So, so um, really things had really shifted quite a bit. That's, that's, that's the, the 60s and early 70s is a time where things were just changing at lightning speed. So yeah, reproductive rights, right? Yes, you have the absolutely. introduction of the pill. Yes, um, absolutely. And, you know, I, and I realized that times move faster because of technology, but, but there's, there was something much bigger than, than technology that was, that was going on here. That's one of the reasons why the sixties have always fascinated me so much. If you, I'm, I love the history of fashion. It's one of my favorite things to read about. It's one of my favorite things to write about. There are a lot of clothes in this. There's a lot of clothes in every book that I've written. I think Marilyn probably is the least amount of clothes. She, um, but even if you, if you look at like 1965 to 1967, even two years, the fashions were so different. 1967, 1969, two years again. Um, it doesn't move like that now. You know, and it and it and it, I don't think it ever will again. It hasn't before. It hasn't since. So there was something going on then. Obviously, you know. Well, and a shift in consciousness, right? Yes. I mean, that was the second yes. wave feminist call with the feminine mystique, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, uh, even Alice Walker. Like yeah. that, we're going to shift our thinking and live our lives without feeling those constraints. And I Absolutely. think. And that's, and see, that's yeah. with, with these four women, that's what, that's what the, probably one of the main things that they had in common, all in their very, very different ways, you know, to talk about Marsha Hunt again, she is somebody who was out of all four of the women, certainly by far the most interested in a, on the, on a larger level what is happening in society? You know, let's create new ways of living. Sure, she was interested on, on to to live in a in a way that she wanted to live on her own individual way, but she was is somebody who was very interested in what's happening at the society level too. You know, maybe as a black woman that that she was more tuned into what is happening at a society level. Um, maybe that was that was part of it for for her. I think. Um, Bianca was is somebody who was a little more tuned into that as well. Anita Pallenberg, again, very much just like, I'm gonna do what I want to do. And and um and I'm and I mean that in a way in a way that I <laughs> in a very positive way. Um mm -hmm. she's probably my favorite out of everybody in the book. Um the one who for better or worse, I kind of wish I was more like <laughs> I just I just love her. I loved writing about her. I, I wish I knew her. Um, she's someone who I am mesmerized by, if you can't tell. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was something is, again, I know that what's beautiful is you hear so many responses from your readers, but I'm sure you had to think, what if one of these women picked my book up? Like, did that ever 
has there been, I mean, your book's only been out a few months, but is that a hope that one of them well, yes. it, I mean, of comes course, across their desk? Of course, it's not possible for Anita to pick my my mm. my my book up, at least not on this earth or this realm. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, I've gotten a positive re response from um Marsh from Mar Marsha Hunt. So that was like wonderful. It is amazing to get a positive response. I hope that Marianne Faithful reads my book. I I have quoted at length from from her memoir. Marianne Faithful, as you can tell from my book, is an amazing writer. Like <laughs> she is just she's the kind of writer that I hope that I am or that I hope that I get to be one day. Her her the way that she's got an amazing imagination. Um and you get I think that one of the reasons reasons why Marianne's a great writer is because she's such a, a, a great reader. You know, she lives and reads poetry and literature. So um, anyway, different. <laughs> That's a bit of a tangent, but I do hope she picks up my book at some point. Yeah, well, and I think I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask about the men, which is they're all so complicated, like, you know, just because they're men doesn't mean they're not layered and nuanced and right. everyone and I, is layered. And I hope that I, that that comes across yes. the book. Well, and that's something I think is so wonderful. And what you do is when you're dealing with a group, like not even just the Rolling Stones, but a group of women and interconnected lives, I feel I'm, I gravitate more towards these books than ones where it's just, um, the solo music, um, right guest or right. like just a Mick Jagger nothing against anyone who I think they're wonderful books but I find that sometimes when you're just writing a biography of say Mick Jagger it's it's going to be you're trying to paint a certain picture and right can't dig into all of the interconnectedness of his life with these conversations the just people who entered their lives and I think it must have been so fun thinking about how these women interacted with especially Mick Jagger or Oh, it was you know. so much so much fun. Um I've always been interested in like kind of like I've always thought what band dynamics are, are interesting to me, like rock band dynamics have always been interesting to me. And the Rolling Stones, the dynamics <laughs> The relationships that, that in that band, I mean, incredible, incredible. Like that is something that is, 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 it was always shifting. It was, and like I said, in the very beginning, I think of my book, you know, women get, un get unfairly labeled as like gossipy and bitchy and not nice to each other, but the, which is of course, no, no gender has, has, has that cornered, you know, but the, the Rolling Stones were like, I have never seen or I mean, read or heard more like the, the, they were so awful to each other. And that now, now, the, now we're friends. Now you're not, friends. you know, like, like constantly ganging up on each other and, 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 like this and, and that and it was and, and jealous of each other and angry with each other and it was it was crazy particularly in the earlier days of the band and um 
that was pretty wild to to learn about it and to write about. And of course, it had it has an impact on the creativity. And it's incredible that they even stayed they stayed together for so long, knowing that. But that was really interesting to to read and write about. And naturally, you know, Anita Pallenberg and Marianne Faithful out of the four women were the two who were connected. They spent time together, a lot of time together, and they had a very, very close friendship that that a friendship that that lasted for decades because long after um well Anita was involved with Keith for for 13 years. So um Marianne's relationship with Mick was over much sooner. Um, but long after either of them were involved with the Stones um, they stayed close through the 80s, through the 90s, through the aughts, I, you know, until Anita's death in, in, 19, or in 2017. And Marianne wrote a wonderful song in tribute to her, one of her albums. Um, so their relationship was really fascinating. And one of the things that I really love about, about what happened was, you know, Anita did probably sleep with, with, with Mick during the filming of performance and while Marianne was still with him, but they were able to get past that and get and get over that very, very quickly. Um, you know, their their friendship really was that strong. Yeah. So, you know, for my last question, Elizabeth, is just what do you really hope readers are taking away or just thinking about these dynamics, like you've opened up right now about how um, volatile, but also how empowered the Rolling Stones just as a band and a presence were. Like it, it was a back and forth. Like this wasn't just, they were always all positive and all living in peace. There was of course the obstacles. So, you know, what does a reader really gain from looking at all of these perspectives and especially the gender, the sex politics that is at the heart of these four women and their journey with the Rolling Stones? I think that um, one of the biggest, one of the biggest things here is the tremendous influence that these women, particularly Anita and Marianne, because they were there in the very, in the, in the, in the, in the relatively early, had on the Stones' music and their success. Mm-hmm. Not be, because um, so much of the Stones is their style, right? You know, I love the music. I'm the biggest fan of the music, but the style is such a big part of it. And that real pirate style of rock and roll was so new at the time. The Stones pioneered that. But what was really happening is, that was Anita's influence. That was Marianne's influence. And since rock culture was so new, the tremendous influence that these women had on rock culture, on the on how that rock culture as we know it today, what we think of how rock culture has been for so long is sort of because of these women. So that's one big thing. And then I think another thing is just how much, like how tough these women were just to like, like, you know, just to withstand all of this and the bravery that they had just to live, to really be true to themselves in such difficult, tumultuous times. 
is it's it's inspiring really i mean to, to use a cliched word it's inspiring it's, it's inspiring to me and i hope it is to the readers as well well it is very inspiring and i can't wait for um the book club to discuss parachute women so elizabeth i know is going to answer the book club members question so i'll add you know her responses after this section of the interview. So Elizabeth, it's been wonderful having you back. Everyone, please look at the show notes. I have a link to both the book and the audiobook. There's an audiobook too of Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder. Um, I loved our conversation, Elizabeth. You are welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room anytime. Thank um, you. It was great being here. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks to all the listeners out there. And thank you so much, Elizabeth. Can't wait to talk to you again and see what you're, you know, brewing to use the bewitching (laughs) metaphor. (laughs) Thanks, Elizabeth. Bye.